a load of questions. Hopefully some answers. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is... United Ireland. (laughs) We are in a bit of a limbo at the moment. Um, Well, we're not. The podcast is. Until we officially launch United Ireland 2.0. But what's not in limbo is making sure you still get another great app. This week, we're talking about It's a Sin. Who isn't? Um, And we have a few alternative viewpoints that we think need to be added to the conversation. So this week's question, is it still a sin? That's right. We'll be talking about uh, Russell T Davies' uh, show for all four, It's a Sin, which charts a group of friends navigating the HIV AIDS crisis in London in the 80s and 90s. Everybody loves this show, apparently. Um, I have a wide range of views on it. Um, Much like gender, my perspective is a spectrum. And we're going to be joined by the amazing Veda to chat through some kind of alternative viewpoints to It's a Sin, which is a show that people have really been eulogizing about. Um, But what else can you eulogize about? That's right. You can support us on Patreon. That was a terrible segue. Um, Yeah. Sunday Soothe, every Sunday, supporting your sound presenters. Delicious. Um, Get on it. And you... We are not officially calling this our cultural episode, but once a month we're going to have a culture-focused episode that won't have um, some of the bits that will be in the other episodes. So this is only focused on culture. So stand by for your culture app. So let's get into talking about the show everyone else is talking about, but we're talking about it really quite differently, I think. It's a sin, or is it? Is there anyone who isn't talking about it's a sin at the moment? I don't think so. Um, It has been the hot topic of conversation, Russell T Davies' uh, show about um, the AIDS plague pandemic. Um, And we watched it ourselves. And as happens with every time something happens, uh, myself and Nina had a conversation about it. I came to it going, yeah, I felt that was really good. I really enjoyed it. It was very sad, harrowing, etc. But yeah, I think it was good. Maybe the female uh, character did a lot of the emotional lifting and that wasn't, that didn't sit perfectly with me. But overall, I thought it was good. Cut to Una. Um, and our conversations ran deep. They took a a day and I had... (laughs) They took a day. They actually did. I had an initial conversation and I was like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe it's just focusing in on one group. And I was like, do you know what? I'm going for a walk with the high priestess herself of Veda Beauraves and I'm going to ask her what she thinks. And so now we thought it would be really interesting to cut, well, to continue having me as the middle woman and to have Veda and Una both here to talk about um, their thoughts on if the sin. And um, yeah, so let's kick off. Una, what did you think? Well, I actually want to know what Veda thought first, because I know what I think. Um, so I, I, I want to hear about your thoughts on what you expected from it and then what your experience was watching it. Hi, folks. Thank you for having me. Um, well, I've got to say, like, I thoroughly enjoyed watching it. If that's how you can describe, you know, falling to pieces and sobbing for hours on end. I um, I felt like I got a lot out of it personally because there was a lot going on in the storyline that I could relate to personally and that I've never really seen depicted on television before. Um, so in that way, I really support it. Anything that promotes conversations around HIV and knowing your status, I think is crucial and important. Um, but there were parts that I didn't love. Similar to Andrea, I felt like we were lacking uh, amazing female characters, or at least the female characters that were there weren't given an awful lot of time or development as characters. And I felt like it was more gay than queer, if I can describe it that way. It, it didn't feel as diverse and I didn't feel it was as representative as I would have liked it to be. I think it was mainstream 
But I think that's what they were trying to do. Mm. Yeah, I think I came to it kind of um, really excited because I loved uh, Russell T. Davies' um, show Years and Years from 2019. And um, Lydia West, who plays the kind of uh, female lead in It's a Sin, Jill Baxter, is is also in that. And she's a really great actor. Um, But I guess... So I think I I agree with you, Veda, in that like it's a re, it's a anything that opens up this conversation is really valid. It is a mainstream show. I think a lot of people, particularly younger gays and straight people, would have got a big history lesson from it, um, and that it was moving in parts and the personal devastation um, of HIV/AIDS came through. And so I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that at the, at the outset because I don't want people to feel like I'm shitting all over it with regards to my um, other thoughts about it. So I guess for me, like this, and this is probably a bit unfair, but one of the things that I've really noticed about the reaction to it is how straight people for the most part and this is a representation issue in media and so on are really really eulogizing about it's a sin that it's like the most moving thing ever that it's so brilliant and and I've seen an awful lot of commentary from straight women for example um in you know newspapers and what wherever else and I think there's like a real question here about why like that straight women need to ask themselves why are they seeing themselves so well represented on a gay show and there's basically little to no representation of lesbians or queer women? Now, obviously, like you're saying, Veda, like it is a gay story. Um, HIV AIDS is for the most part, when it's told through this lens, is, is mostly a male story. And I think that it is also about Russell T. Davies' personal experience and the character Jill Baxter is a real person, his like um, best friend who's a straight woman who was heavily involved in activism and care during this period. But I think um, I, I have a lot of suspicions about, uh, you know, and a lot of resentments historically and, and, and contemporary in how um, lesbians are or aren't represented, particularly by um, gay male and by straight male, you know, makers, let's say. Um, and and I've read an off, I've read like pretty much every single interview Russell T Davies has done in and around it now. And he's kind of said stuff like, you know, I wish I could have paid tribute to lesbians. It was a lesbian staff who stepped forward and worked into the late nights around the medical care. And he says, you know, I could have written a whole episode about it. And you're kind of reading it going, well, like, why didn't you? And in an interview with The Guardian, he kind of wrote this thing about how um, tonally he had to be, you know, quite different to being like, you know, to, to sharing the ga- the gay discourse of the time. And he said this thing, you could have written a bunch of gay boys in the 80s sitting around a table taking the piss out of lesbians. And when that kind of um, thing is said, it, it says to me, oh, well, like that's obviously what his perspective was at the time. And, and that kind of rhetoric is quite hurtful because even though obviously we are an LGBT community, there are tensions between gay men and lesbians with regards to misogyny, with regards to um, erasure and things like that. And I suppose there was a piece in GQ where, you know, the the journalist says like Russell T Davies by his own admission wasn't going out on the gay scene in the 80s. Um, and, you know, quote, he kept his head down and worked giving money here and marching there, but largely leaving others to rage against the dying of the light. And now, of it course, shows. He- yeah, well, of course he made Queer as Folk and, um, you know, I haven't watched the Cucumber Banana Tofu series that was followed up. I think the working title of that was More Gay Men um, and then it became those three things. I haven't, I haven't watched that. I did love Years and Years. I don't care about Doctor Who. But I think that, like, I suppose in some ways I'm, I'm coming to this show asking of it things that it may not may not be able to deliver you know so I'm bringing my own baggage to this going 
well, why didn't it do this? Why didn't it share the scale of the crisis? Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't like incredibly moved in the same way that other people are. But at the same time, you know, like loads of people, I've engaged with these histories before. So, you know, you've watched docs and read books and find them maybe more moving or more true to life. And it is his experience. But the problem is, is that it's not necessarily being taken as an individual's experience. And I was talking to an artist friend of mine, a gay man who was saying, you know, the issue who enjoyed the series, but was like, you know, the kind of the issue with things like the these is that they're viewed as canonical like this, even if it doesn't set out to be, it is taken and consumed as the big British AIDS show. And it becomes very difficult then for people to tell other histories that are maybe more um, in scale, that that look more at the political context, the activist context. And for me, It's a Sin was really quite broad. And I have a lot of um, suspicions and confusion about why uh, queer women and lesbian women and, you know, are, are kind of left out of the the picture. And this is like, you know, this is a, a sore point for me generally because it just so often happens. And when you look at the activism that lesbians did at that time and the care, be that in the medical profession or more informally, it kind of sticks in my craw that the central character is a straight woman, which was true to true to life, but who's doing all of the emotional labor for the game man. And the labor, doing, the cooking, yeah. the cleaning, you know, the the taking herself off outside of London to try and care for her friends, you know, like she worked very hard <laughs> in that role. And didn't seem to get the love back in return. Like they, Yeah, it wasn't celebrated. I felt like that was, I'd said to Andrea when we were having our little walk, that's where it fell down for me. There were a few places. One was that as a community, as I experienced it, we were much more integrated. There were a lot less out gay people and gay women and gay men were all part of the same tribe in the same way that um, that different kinds of gay men and gay women were all part of the same tribe. It The community hadn't really fragmented until the noughties. All through the 80s and 90s, I feel like... Um, there were a lot of gay women in my immediate circle, in my social life, at the clubs I was at. I didn't see any of that in It's a Sin. It's interesting, isn't it, though? Because I think the Irish scene, um, although it may be, as you say, more fragmented now, is kind of less segregated than the London scene, the New York scene, San Francisco scene, um, I think probably by virtue of its size. You know, when you go to, to gay bars in you know, London or New York or whatever, like there is a segregation there that Ireland doesn't really experience. We have a different, more diverse, more gender diverse community. Um, and we also don't really allow each other or allow ourselves um, to get up ourselves as much. So segregation doesn't come as naturally, I think. I remember the first time I went to Fire Island in New York in the noughties, the idea that there were different tiers of gay communities just blew my mind. The idea that um, like white, straight, attractive, wealthy gays went to the pines and the rest of us, the drag queens, the diseased, the gender non-conforming, the economically challenged all went to Cherry Grove just blew my mind. That's not something I was familiar with or used to in Dublin or even in London, to be honest. Hmm. Andrea, what do you think about those thoughts as the token straight here? Token straight. I think it's really interesting because obviously I came away from it um, when I watched it. And I did think um, they painted the main female character quite meekly. But I kind of then I did identify because like I am a girl, a straight woman with like a lot of gay male friends. Um, and I can, like I suppose when I when we were talking about it first, I was like, but that's not really the story. The story is how it affected this group of friends. But then I suppose as we teased it out a little bit and with yourself and Veda, I think it was a little bit like, yes, that is their story. And that is Russell T Davies story. But if you are going to do a, a film or a show that is going to encapsulate a certain time, 
you kind of have to encapsulate a certain time and not just your experience and to like you do like if you are going to do it you're not just going to write your own story you're going to write you're going to research and write a, a wider more diverse story because that wasn't that that was our story it wasn't their story and I like I suppose then in conversations with Ada about the matriarchal uh, figures that were in your life I thought was really interesting in terms of how it was it wasn't the role of the straight woman to come in and mind uh this community it was a it was a relationship of equity where they they were strong figures as well as um entering into the the queer community and i think that that wasn't was really not represented either yeah, we got the lawyer, but I don't know. Like, I presume that the lawyer character was a gay woman, but it wasn't really expressed explicitly that she was a gay woman. Um, and it felt like a bit of a token, like a nod to the power lesbians. It was a great scene. And she, mm. she kind of was the standout female character of the whole thing, which was so short, I suppose. Two episodes only and just yeah. two couple of scenes. She kind of passed me by, actually. Um, I, I kind of didn't even connect with that character, I guess, because a lot of the show is quite broad, right? It's it's there aren't really character arcs. They don't necessarily develop. Um, and I don't know, like, I don't know how you feel about this, Veda, but like when you hear and see the reaction um, obviously we live in a straight world in many ways in straight societies and we have a straight media and a straight kind of commentary at when you hear and read reactions to this where people are like oh it's so moving and it's black like this, these are all my biases but I kind of get quite like ugh about that that kind of stuff because I just feel like I have a lot of concerns about the commodification of gay male pain and that being consumed as like a heartfelt story when the scale of things and also like the political failures and the social failures and the scientific failures aren't being foregrounded. Ultimately, the hero of this story is a, is another straight person. Yeah, I agree. And and, and we know that it works because of Philadelphia. You know, it's always worked, this this idea of, of using the gay pain and the gay experience to create, you know, something quite um, mainstream is something we're familiar with. And and I wonder if, if we could turn that, their interest in it to sin into something more positive. Like I remember noticing when Joe and Kamala changed their Twitter profiles to include their pronouns, thinking, wow, that's amazing because um, gender nonconforming people are being seen and will feel safer. But then it also made me think they're not saying their status. You know, I'd like to see their status up there as well, because until people know their status, there's no way of stopping the spread of the disease. Do you think it present one of the things that I felt is that it presented HIV and AIDS as historical? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that, that's kind of, I suppose, what I'm trying to say is like right now, one in seven people who are HIV positive don't know that they're HIV positive. That's like having one day of the week where we just let everybody out of lockdown to do whatever they want. And that's why the disease is still around with nearly 40 million people living with HIV after four decades. It's madness, you know? So it's certainly not something that's historical. So that's what I'd like to see come out of It's a Sin is more testing for straight people and for gay people and more people having conversations about their status and having difficult conversations. That's what we need to happen. And I think the stats of what, of the rise of HIV, the it obviously it's a sin does position it as a gay male issue, whereas the stats show that it's a rising in straight women. It's rising um, all the time. And you, know, you were saying that it was more prevalent now than it was back in the time that the show was was filmed. 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, um, in an Irish context, it's kind of hard to really nail down the stats, um, considering the lack of testing uh, in the kind of 80s and 90s and how um, the virus has changed in terms of how people live with HIV. Um, and also that, the like, you could probably say, like, not very scientifically, but you could probably say anecdotally that an awful lot, if not the majority of Irish people who died um, with HIV AIDS or who died from AIDS related illnesses actually died outside of Ireland, right? Because, you know, Ireland is completely, was a completely inhospitable place to um, gay people uh, in the 80s and in, you know, most of the 90s and people were emigrating. So, you know, gay men were dying in London and in New York and in San, San Francisco and so on. But what we do know now is that someone is diagnosed with HIV in Ireland on average every 18 hours. Um, and that indicates that the rate of HIV diagnosis is higher than it was at the peak of the AIDS plague. And 79% of those new HIV diagnoses are among um, people aged 25 to 39 here. And men who have sex with men are the group most affected. Um, so they account for 56% of new diagnoses in, in 2018. So you compare that with, let's say, new diagnoses amongst people who inject drugs, which is another cohort who are who are at risk. Obviously, um, that's 3% of new diagnoses. So like, there's a massive, massive gap there. This crisis really in Ireland has given rise to the restarting of ACT UP Dublin, ACT UP being kind of the, the landmark HIV AIDS activist group um, from North America. And the narrative has changed around living with HIV, U equals U, like undetectable equals untransmittable, that um, if you are taking the right drugs and so on, you cannot transmit. Um, with new drugs coming on stream like PrEP, which is a preventative uh, drug, and PEP, which is a post-exposure drug used in emergency situations after, you know, potential exposure, like the morning after pill or something like that. So, I mean, I don't know what you feel about how, like, Veda, I, I hope that this offers people an insight into something that they can then engage with further as opposed to be like, OK, now I've seen the AIDS show. That's it for me. Yeah, completely. And also, you don't want the legacy of the show just to be more stigma. Stigma is really the most damaging part of a diagnosis for a lot of people, certainly in in this country. And um and having a show that is so dark and so sad and then not really building on that or bringing it up to, you know, what's going on with the current day, I think is a bit dangerous. Mm. Like I found it heartbreaking to watch the show and it took me days before I could have a conversation about it. I never tweeted about it or really got into anything about it because I just so personally, I felt ravaged by it. And the idea that other people are vicariously getting off on that, you know, but not thinking it through, not taking it any further, not having conversations about their status, not being, um, you know, proactive in, in showing compassion to people who are HIV positive. Um, that bothers me. Do you know when you say ravaged by it, like, and that, that it, it really impacted you emotionally, like, do you feel that that was something like positive in that you you were seeing something represented, even if it's like a period piece, essentially, that was very empathic? Or did you feel like it was raw or just poke, like pressing those buttons? It was very raw, but I did feel like I got something out of seeing myself in certain scenarios. Like when Richie went to get his test results and then didn't stick around for his test results and 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 uh, just couldn't face it. I could really relate to that. The first time I ever went to the HIV clinic in um, James's was the last time I ever went there um, because I just couldn't face it. And that broke my heart, but I never thought I would see myself and my experiences represented like that either. And I feel like a lot of people could probably relate better to me and how I've been feeling for the last decade since my diagnosis. But like I said, if that doesn't turn into positive action, if that doesn't, you know, get us over the line where we can stop the spread of HIV, well, then I don't think it's really 
um, fulfilled its its true potential. Do you think that a dyke like me has a case to complain <laughs> or do you think that it's like, well, I get it, but, you know, this isn't about you? No, I think you're absolutely 100% valid in what you're saying and completely right. I felt the same way about it. I didn't feel like the women that I know and knew then and the roles that they played were being represented at all on screen. I also felt like, you know, just for the fashion alone, that maybe they should shut down the show. (laughs) (laughs) The 80s was such an amazing time. And one of the things I noticed when lots of people online started sharing photos of themselves at that time, it just confirmed what I had been thinking while I was watching the show, which is the wardrobe department really dropped the ball. You know, the clothes were kind of dumbed down as well as the characters. The whole thing was a lot less queer than it, it really was. Mm. Do you think it was made to cut through to a mainstream audience and all that was done on purpose? Yeah, I think it was because I think, you know, you couldn't really check out the references of those times and, uh, you know, and the people, how they actually dressed and lived and even just how what they were wearing at the photos of the protests and then just end up with a hell of a lot of like, you know, pastel coloured t-shirts and sweatshirt shapes and very few outstanding looks, which is the opposite of what queer people were about at that time. You know, someone like Roscoe uh, would have certainly, like a femme and out femme character would have had eyeshadow that looks like Elizabeth Taylor's, not like snooker chalk. (laughs) (laughs) Shade is real. (laughs) You know, the, the clothes were just such a huge disappointment. The thing about the 80s was you could walk into like the Eager Beaver or any charity shop and walk out the other end looking like Duran Duran. That's where that style came from. It came from having no money and, you know, and, and a lot of creativity. And it was a shame not to see that on the screen in the same way that a lot of the music, even though the music's amazing and queer pop was huge at the time, it's the more mainstream end of the queer pop that they're giving us. You know, it's the wham and the, the pet shop boys and the, you know, the things that we know work in a straight audience. Mm. I wonder, like part of me also feels like that I'm kind of gl- glad maybe in a way that the this sounds totally contradicting previously what I'm saying, but that Russell T Davies didn't, um, you know, flood the zone with, with like more women or lesbian characters or whatever. Like the casting is, is diverse in terms of, um, like ethnic, uh, representation, um, and, you know, people of, of different like racial backgrounds and so on. But I, I th- I can't help but feeling like maybe I'd be even more eye rolly about it if there were these kind of like cliched lesbians because I I think maybe Russell T Davies deserves credit for perhaps like noting his limitations in that <laughs> can't make <laughs> you happy in it. <laughs> well, here's what I feel about it is that I I'm glad that people are getting stuff out of it. I don't think it's you know a dud by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that when there is this narrative out there that this is the best thing ever, that here are some other thoughts, you know, like here are some other perspectives about it. And that's not shitting all over it at all. And I think that I, I take what you're saying, Andre, about uh, um, uh, that it's a mainstream effort. But I think that you can also be like very cutting edge and very cool and like super duper interesting and very specific and also be mainstream. You, you, it doesn't have to be so broad. Um, so, so I think that there was a, a trick missed there. And I think that when there are these, um, you know, this, this kind of idea that like everyone's in agreement that It's a Sin is an instant classic and it's so brilliant. It's like, well, let's kick the tires of that a little bit. Do you think that maybe the making of this and its success and how it was like one of the most downloaded shows on Morphor or or whatever, um, it will uh, open the gates to allow more queer stories to be made and told by maybe, and maybe that will be the kind of proof it's like look people are open to these stories they do want to hear them they do want to hear from queer voices and they do want to hear queer stories so maybe it might open that into allowing more maybe like representative stories be told on mainstream platforms 
Like, I think yes and no about those things. I think that, yes, that that can happen. I, I also think that it can also close the door on gay stories or, or, or similar stories from that time. Because, you know, in TV commissioning land, there can be like, well, we've done that. You know, would it be easy to get a show um, set in the 90s about dairy you know, a comedy made right now on television, like probably not because Dairy Girls exists, you know? So I think that it it can definitely create a a run on queer stories in that people go, oh, this was successful, like give us more. What I would like to see is the, and, and this is an issue of, of misogyny really and, and in, in television and film that there are not many uh, queer women um basically being given access to, you know, the tools of production and, and commissioning and stuff like that. And what I would like to see are more queer female perspectives. And also, like, I guess it can be hard to do that because lesbian culture is more subcultural and, you know, there are issues around documenting history and all that kind of stuff. But like, I think that um, like, yes and no. And I, I I, it's kind of for me. It's like Russell T Davies is, is positioned as like the mainstream gay television maker in He's like the, the UK. Ryan Murphy. Yeah, and like Ryan Murphy, in my opinion, has done an awful lot of damage to the space for queer stories to be told on American television. He's just like this Roomba, like sucking up all of the the gay stories, and and I find his work really soulless and cold and clinical. So I would hope that you know, that people do see this. This is the Russell T Davies show and it's not like the gay show or the AIDS show or the, you know, the 80s, 90s queer show. Um, You know, Queer as Folk, which he made, was super radical, although, you know, you couldn't make that show now because one of the characters was a 15-year-old guy. Um, So he, he has been radical. I thought Years and Years was quite radical as well. And I think it's interesting how, how, safe um and and at times quite pedestrian this this felt what are your final thoughts veda well I, I i agree with what you're saying completely like i think already the success of it's a sin has probably spurned lots of pitches to television stations all over the world for documentaries or reality tv shows or um or more dramas about the hiv experience and I worry that the people making those pitches are just being triggered by the success of this show and not by a knowledge of a passion for or or any real qualifications to make those documentaries slash shows that no doubt will will come because of it. And yeah, I think that's that's the danger of dumbing down our culture just to make it more mainstream and and better on TV. Or, or a trend. Yeah, that too. Okay, that uh, I think definitely gives us a, a, an insight into the minds of Una and Veda's thoughts on It's a Sin. Um, definitely some food for thought. Thank you, Veda, for joining us. As always, it's a pleasure. And yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you both. Remember, you equals you. So on the back of that, it's Sin Chat. Um, and I hope you enjoyed our perspectives. Obviously, you know, we're not just coming out guns blazing with the show. Like I did, I want to qualify it by saying that I did enjoy it and I was moved in parts, but um, I just think it's valid to have other perspectives on it. But what I do hope is that people who engage with this show and who did enjoy it, like be that straight people or people who haven't really engaged with AIDS histories before, or younger LGBT people who are encountering it for the first time and how can you blame people because so much of this history was just not documented um, and not kind of made mainstream and there still is stigma and there still is a lack of information out there. So, you know, I, I, I don't want it to be seen about like, how do you not know all this stuff or how did you not notice this? Because it's, you know, a mainstream TV show on on. Uh, you know, all four and, and, and it's doing what it's doing and that's fine. You know, that's valid as well. Um, but I just thought it might be useful for people if you, if it did spark something in you um, to kind of look further, there's a bunch of stuff that I have kind of seen over the years that I would recommend. So 
something that I actually only watched last year is Buddies. Um, it was this film made in 1985. It's kind of viewed as the first you know, feature film about the AIDS pandemic. It's quite lo-fi. The acting is kind of clunky. It's very of its time. It's like low budget. And it's about um, a a guy who is in hospital with HIV, which has progressed to AIDS and and how another man comes in there. People were kind of paired up in hospital with volunteers because a lot of people were obviously left on their own, abandoned by families, uh, hugely stigmatized in the community. And so there were all these different programs about um, volunteers coming in to kind of just talk to people on their deathbeds, basically. And this film documents that it was made by um, Arthur Bresson Jr., who actually came out in 1985 um, and he died uh, in 87 from an AIDS related illness. He also made Uh, a film called Gay USA, which is this amazing documentary about the gay rights movement. And it's kind of a non-narrative film rooted in footage of lesbian and gay pride marches. And it was all shot through 1977 and it was released in in 1978. So check that out. Um, AIDS and its Metaphors by Susan Sontag, a book uh, from 1989. There was a follow-up to Illness as a Metaphor in 78. If you're into... Susan Sontag's perspective on AIDS that would be one for you um, and the band played on is this really big book uh, by Randy Schiltz uh, which kind of charts the spread of HIV and AIDS and contextualizes it uh, in terms of government inaction and the science of it the epidemiology of it and in 1993 that was adapted as a kind of docudrama it's kind of worth looking that up as well We Were Here is a 2011 documentary by uh, David Weisman and Bill Weber uh, about the kind of San Francisco perspective. Often a lot of uh, stories about AIDS amongst gay men and HIV amongst gay men are rooted in New York. Um, this is a kind of a, a West Coast American perspective on that. United in Anger is a 2012 documentary by Jim Hubbard and Sarah Shulman, who you'll hear, you always hear me talk about on the podcast. Um, and that's about a history of ACT UP which was the kind of direct action uh, campaigning and advocacy group established uh, at the time um, and is still ongoing in multiple jurisdictions, including uh, its restart in Dublin. How to Survive a Plague, uh, another 2012 documentary by David France, who's a journalist written for The New Yorker and, and various places like that. And that's an adaptation of his book uh, of the same name. The Gentrification of the Mind, Witness to a Lost Imagination, another book by Sarah Shulman. It's kind of her memoir, uh, 1981 to 1986. And it charts um, the impact of HIV AIDS in New York on a generation of artists and uh, the LGBT community and queer community, gay male community in New York. And also about what happened with regards to the heteronormativity of uh, queer politics that followed. And also how the um, AIDS pandemic impacted gentrification in New York. So she charts like urban gentrification and the, the as the book is called, the gentrification of the mind, like what what that did to uh, LGBT politics and, and activism. Um, obviously, the HIV AIDS uh, emergency plague had a huge impact on gentrification in New York because as gay men were dying, um, their the literal physical uh, housing spaces opened up, and when you look at the patterns of gentrification in New York, um, they occurred at where kind of deaths were were highest in uh, Harlem and uh, the East Village, Lower East Side, uh, that kind of thing. So that's really interesting. She has another book coming out this summer um, called "Let the Record Show: A Political History of ACT UP New York, nineteen eighty seven to nineteen ninety three." Really excited about reading that. Um, and you can also go back to her 1990 novel, People in Trouble, which was kind of this love triangle between a lesbian, a bisexual artist and their male partner. And it's also about a landlord evicting people from the East Village uh, because they have AIDS. Um, and the AIDS is, is quite central to to the novel. And when Sarah Shulman saw Rent, uh, the musical, for the first time, she realized she was watching her novel and has written a lot about uh, that novel being ripped off uh, for Rent. Um the guy who made Rent, Jonathan Larson, died the night before the first preview of Rent. He was a straight man. He he died of a brain aneurysm. Um, and she's spoken a lot about how plays and films, Sarah Shulman has, like The Normal Heart, Angels in America, Dallas Buyers Club, Philadelphia, tend to cast straight people as heroes. Um, she's also critical of, of How to Survive a Plague, uh, the documentary, by the way, is, is kind of focusing on the heroic white male. 
120 BPM is a French film that came out a couple of years ago about ACT UP in 90s Paris. And when you think kind of more broadly, even just looking at the art of the time, I just um, recently finished a new uh, biography of Keith Haring by Simon Doonan, who I was talking to last week about that time. And when you think about this, like, you know, just the impact of AIDS on art and on a generation of, if we look at it from, again, a a North American gay male perspective, and you think about uh, people like be just this generation wiped out who lost their lives, Rock Hudson, Freddie Mercury, Liberace, Keith Haring, Robert Mapplethorpe, um, Rudolf Nureyev, Easy e Derek Jarman, uh, David Wojnarowicz, who has a memoir actually called Close to the Knives, 1991, which is really good. Um, Cookie Muller, Vincent Hanley, uh, the, the Irish presenter, wrote a piece about um, his life and death a few years ago. Um he died quite early on in the in the emergency. Kenny Everett, Jabriath, who died in eighty three, so early on. Um, Arthur Russell, Sylvester Lee Barry, Perry Ellis, uh, Halston, uh, Michel Foucault, and Vito Russo, uh, whose book The Celluloid Closet, which was published in nineteen ninety one, offers a kind of queer lens in the history of American cinema in terms of representation of LGBT characters. And there was a nineteen ninety five documentary made uh, of that book, also called The Cellulite Closet, which was narrated by Lily Tomlin. Obviously, we're talking, we were talking about it's a sin, so we're, you know, obviously talking about uh, the gay male perspective on AIDS. But, you know, in 2019, 700,000 people died from AIDS-related illnesses globally. And in 2004, it was actually the peak of AIDS-related deaths, around 1.7 million and so that is to say that we have been talking about HIV AIDS through the gay male lens. The most devastating impact was and is felt in sub-Saharan Africa, where 69% of the kind of 35-ish million people who are HIV positive live in sub-Saharan Africa. 91% of all HIV positive children live in the continent of Africa. And 15 million people on the continent of Africa have died from AIDS-related illnesses, which has lowered the life expectancy in sub-Saharan Africa by 20 years. We've referenced the current HIV crisis in Ireland. If you want to find out more about uh, living with HIV, getting tested for HIV, U equals U, um, and the kind of ending the stigma around HIV, uh, go to HIVIreland.ie and also actupdublin.com. And there's plenty of stuff there. So let's reduce stigma. Remember that HIV crisis is not historical, that it is contemporary and ongoing and that education and um, engaging with histories and contemporary contexts is really important, not just watching a TV show, although that's good too. Fave bits, Andrea, hit me up. Oh my God, my fave bits are, first of all, the Virgin Media Dublin Film Festival launched last week, this week, someday. And I just think it's so perfect for right now because given that we are in lockdown for the next six years, um, I am going to try and watch every film. It's a, it's a more restrict, not more restricted, the 60 films. Um, so that is a very possible amount of films to get through. So I'm going to set myself a challenge of watching the 60 films and it's to watch every film it's 150 euro for a festival pass so that seems like a really good deal for 60 films so i'm digging that um also i am digging the addition there's loads of different side bits to the to the film festival um and it's really interesting to watch those side bits come in but uh there is the irish civil council for civil liberties um their human rights section, but there's also a new section which is uh, highlighting the work that goes into music videos um, and the film joy that comes from that, created by Eric Cody. And yeah, I just think that's a really nice addition to the festival. Um, great videos in there. My other fave bit is tonight, if we get this out on time. Oh, or if not, you'll still be able to see it. Um, the, at eight o'clock, Era to the World um, is having its premiere. It is pre- a film presented and produced by Zayda the Architect, Jafaris, Irish Black Owned, Res Concepts, Diffusion Lab, Body Tonic, Jam Park, No Trackies, No Runners, and Lost Studios. 
and it was commissioned by Project Art Centre and the Dublin City Council. Um, and yeah, it is a story um, pre- like showcasing black culture in Ireland. Um, and I'm really excited to watch that tonight. Why are we just watch it on YouTube, is it? Um, it is on Project Art Centre's website. You'll find all the details. Um, also, I got an email in this morning from Dublin Enquirer and it, every time I like read them, I, I'm just struck by how brilliant they are and what a great local newspaper um, and what great stories they have and what great insight into how the council works. And just, I just think it's just brilliant. Um, so I just wanted to pop that in. Uh, applications for Dublin Fringe are open today. Um, obviously, unprecedented times, yada, yada, yada. But uh, last year uh, they did put on a festival that was extremely brilliant and there are plans to go for gold uh, this year. So if you do have any ideas of something you'd like to bring to life, now is the time. Go on to Dublin Fringe for how to apply for, to bring your creative vision to life um, as part of the festival. And then finally, oh my God, now, I don't usually like um, like videos and like joke memes and blah, blah. And I often worry if I have no uh, sense of humor and if I'm just a dry shite. But then, oh my God, I watched this video and everyone's watched it at this stage of I'm not a cat, the lawyer and the judge. It is just the funniest thing I think I've ever seen in my whole entire life. And I just, I keep going back to it maybe every hour to have like a little pep in my step watching it. And I never have laughed, like I don't laugh at things on the internet. I literally sat for about 15 minutes on my own in my house last night with my dogs, belly laughing of, uh, <laughs> of your man just being like, I'm prepared to go forward with it. Basically, he's wearing a filter and the judge is like, I think you've got a filter on because he's a cat. And he's like, uh, yeah, we're trying to fix it, but I'm prepared to go forward with it. Just like I am live. I'm not, I'm not a cat. It's just, it's just, uh, it's just, it makes me think that is why the internet was created. <laughs> Personally, I think all um, court cases should be adjudicated by very cute, mournful looking kittens. Um, my fave bits are Pillow Queens are doing Tim Burgess's listening party, album listening party on Twitter uh, Feb 15th, I believe. You can check out their um, social media bits <laughs> to see when that is. Uh, that's always a really fun online disc- track by track discussion uh, of an album and their album is in waiting and it's brilliant. My other fave bit is... Um, I was watching a television uh, live on Saturday night. Uh, Don't watch television really in terms of the, you know, terrestrial broadcasters, whatever you want to call them. Um, And I was watching the Tommy Tiernan show. I was just struck by how, is that what it's called? Tommy Tiernan? Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, and, And it's just really, really uh, this is very old news, but I'm finally engaged with it. It's just really interesting in terms of, because okay, so this guests were really good. There was like this retired uh, district court judge, Brian O'Driscoll, Stephen Ray. And I think what I enjoy about it is, as a journalist, I get bored of only interviewing people who are just on the promo circuit. You know, they have something to sell. So the interview is just an ad for their latest film book, whatever. And it just is occupying a more uh, less commercialized space in terms of just talking to people because they're interested. And also I like the silence in the interviews, like there's a lot of tension and risk involved and it's just much more chilled and calming. It's just not as showy or um, fake as, as or performative. So um that was my, those are my thoughts on it. These, this, I presume the show is probably about three or four years old, is it? And yeah. I'm engaging with it now. Cool. Yeah. That's, <laughs> as you know, Andrea, uh, I gave up uh, mainstream popular culture many years ago when I'm very like, good that there are some jewels in the crown. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really quite. It's really well done. It's a really wide, diverse range of guests. It's really, uh, I think the one that stands out for me is the Brenda Fricker interview of how um, the time given to to the space, as you say, of silence allows the real person to come through and feel comfortable and not to be like jazz hands and whatever. And 
it really was the journey that that interview went on. That was the arc of it was so fascinating to see the actual humanity come out of Brenda Fricker and not just I'm Brenda Fricker, the artist. It was, yeah, mm. it was brilliant. It's really interesting, you know, the the whole kind of silence. But I remember reading in college um, how Joan Didion often left large gaps of silence in her interviews and that this was like a mechanism that allowed for people to be more often. And I sometimes adopt that myself, like since reading about that when I was 18 or 19 or something, because when you are silent, when you just stop talking, it's so interesting how people often try and fill the space and they end up filling the space with something much more honest um, and insightful than you just kind of fielding questions or or getting them to feel questions. So, I, yeah, I think that it takes a lot of... Um, a lot of guts and a lot of thoughtfulness to 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 kind of be that risky and what what a great format. Um, my other fave bit is a film called Deadly Cuts, which is at the uh, Dublin Film Festival, and I'm very excited to see it and keep an eye out for it because I think it's going to be doing uh, some good stuff. That's the hairdressers. Yeah, uh, looked brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Um. And a new item on on this our uh, occasional culture culture focused podcast, which is still a United Ireland podcast, but we're just g- give it over to some more cultural vibes. What is our new item, uh, Andrea? Our new item is Una's book of the week. That was a real Andrew vibe, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is something that Andrea suggested. Why did you suggest it, Andrea? The reasons I suggested were we are actually very much taking um, all the survey results on board and uh, there was an interest in cultural um, recommendations and something that Una only uses her social media for as much as I try and make her do a story she only uses it for books and uh, my Instagram yeah and reads a lot of books and it's it's really interesting uh, book clubs aren't popular for no reason let's just say but also it is interesting to get recommendations from people who read a lot of books as someone who doesn't I then trust people who read a lot to give me the good shit so uh, I wanted this more selfishly as well (laughs) as a book recommendation so my book of the week this week uh, the context of it is I I love reading the books that are out or the new books or the books you get uh, sent from publishers that are coming out. Um, but what I find about, I guess, what can be broadly called book Instagram, you know, where, you know, where people are just talking about books is that it really oftentimes only focuses on the, on the books that are coming out. And then it's like, well, this is kind of just another tool of the publishing industry then to like push to get people to buy books. So I think it's which is like, okay, <laughs> which is fine. Um, and, but I suppose, uh, you know, I I think it's really important to look back as well um, and to not just be reading books of the time because when you read books from before the now times, you end up can, you know, having a lot more perspective and, and can learn different things about right now as opposed to just being like spoken to about the moment all the time. So the book I'm reading this week is called But Beautiful. It's a book about jazz and jazz musicians by Jeff Dyer. The form of it is really interesting because it's um, improvised and it's basically like he fictionalizes a lot of um, incidents and characters as he see as he sees them. And it's called like I think he calls it imaginative criticism. So he he takes inspiration from a lot of photographs of jazz musicians and then builds these scenes and scenarios around them while also giving you like loads and loads of information about the time and about their music and about the personalities and about what they did. And um, it's funny because I'm just sitting at my desk here right now and I just don't know how I haven't fucking joined the dots of this, but I'm just looking at the, the f- photograph that I have in front of me and it's a photo of um, Chet Baker and... Uh, and Jeff Dyer has this really interesting introduction to to the book where he talks about those photographs from, you know, the the peak, I suppose, or, or the seminal kind of aspects of, of the jazz era. People like Chet Baker or Miles Davis and Duke Wellington, all that kind of stuff. And 
you know, I'm looking at this photograph and what Jeff Dyer says is that like, you know, these photographs of jazz musicians, you can almost see what's happening in the time before and right afterwards. And you get this like broader sense. And he talks about how you need to listen to photographs and like the better a photograph is, the more you hear from it. And I've always felt that about the photography of jazz musicians. So if you are interested in that or just in music criticism or in forms that are a little bit experimental, the book is called But Beautiful. Uh, and it's by Jeff Dyer. Sounds like a very interesting take. Yeah. <laughs> yeah cool. This podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan and Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack, and Sarah Fox did all of our design. Hit me with the TCR. So there I was bopping around my house while I was actually at my computer and I just put on a solo X playlist. Why did I do that to myself? Like it's literally torture. Why am I not in a club? Yada, yada. God, you haven't mentioned that before, Andrew. And then suddenly this song came on and I literally had a rush of adrenaline when I was listening to it. And I actually felt like I was in a euphoric state. And I was like, how is that able to be a possibility and obviously we know that that's the power of music but it was just the, the journey I went on just sitting at my desk that day unbeknownst just suddenly hit me I was like oh my god this is so powerful it was Soul Wax NY Lips by uh, Dreams Van Nettle in 2020 enjoy I've been Una Mulally I've been Andrea Horan this has been United Ireland and that was is it still a sin? excuse me
have too lit, some too long, some buy and others sell. Some do the deed with so many tears, and some without a sign. I can shout. <laughs> 